0: Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. I'm Tom Edwards. Today's program is all about Danish design heritage. We meet the founder of a furniture
1: brand that makes items which can be easily repaired and upgraded to extend their life cycle. You can understand from a business point of view why a brand would like to find new fashion trends. So three years later, after you've sold the first chair, you can sell another one because now there's a new color, there's new materials. But we have to avoid that. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards.
0: You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Henrik Tauder-Florensen is the founder and CEO of TACT, award-winning Danish eco-furniture brand that's on a mission to tackle environmental issues through innovative design and sustainable solutions. Henrik aims to reimagine how quality goods can be accessible without harming the planet, benefiting both people and the environment. He stopped by Midori House to chat about the brand's mission to revolutionise furniture design. The importance of making sustainable products accessible to a wider audience and designing in a way that prioritizes modularity, repairability, and genuine
1: longevity. Here is Henrik with more about TACT. TACT is um, a relatively young company, only uh, four years old in the market. The whole intention of TACT is actually to stand on the shoulders of the giants of Danish design, and then look into the future and try to solve the, the environmental problems we have through design and, and through new solutions. And that's where you need new, new designs and new approaches, and that's what we're trying to do.
0: Now tell me, it's interesting, lots of heritage brands have had to incorporate sustainability practices into what they do. But it's interesting when you have a brand that is founded on that principle Presumably does that make it easier then to ensure that those values are in every decision, every part of the supply chain? Or actually is it just as difficult to change a heritage brand as
1: it is to start a new one? I would think it's easy to start start new. Not to say that it's easy what we do, but we don't have to challenge ourselves all the time. We set aside 10 design principles of how we want to operate, and we don't debate it every time whether we should do it or not in this specific instance. Where I think if you're a heritage brand, you have a library of older products that are beautiful in their own right, but you sort of have to figure out what to do with them. And I think that's going to be a, a debate every time, which is sort of a debate we can avoid. So you're nice and efficient. Let's talk about
0: some of those principles then. Some of them are things actually that sit very comfortably with Monocle's take on the world, which is maybe to buy less, but buy better, less seasonality. Hmm. It's sometimes as difficult, even in the world of furniture as it is in the world of high fashion, yeah. to espouse that value. Do you feel, even just in the what four odd years of the existence of tech, that you're not having to justify it though to people. H- has the conversation moved on? So now people are like, okay, yeah, that's what we want as well. And we don't need to talk about it either.
1: I think the objectives are really well understood and we don't get any pushback on that. I feel the complexity of sustainability is at a level where most people can't understand the full thing because they're engaged in other things and they can't spend the whole life thinking about it. So I think that is a challenge. And I feel as, as it was when we launched, Most companies, I think perhaps the sustainability element comes from the marketing department, sort of as a positioning thing, right? Where if we have to be a little sort of square about it, it's sort of, what's the new color? What's like the new fashion trend? Oh, there's sustainability. We better make a sort of a campaign around that where I think that's not where it should start. It should start from the design phase and the why you're here as a company. Hmm. And that's quite different. So I, I think we probably come across with like 10% of the stuff we're doing. And the rest is just like, you know, trust us, we're doing all the other things, but you can't talk about everything. It's just going to be too complex. No, exactly. And that trust is so important, isn't it? one thing i do find is interesting is a
0: conversation i've had repeatedly over the last couple of years on this program is about the challenge to supply chains caused by the pandemic and of course we're rippled as of what only a year or so into your business's evolution and you're presented with let's be honest an unprecedented challenge in terms of supply chains how was it for you uh, yeah, henry that's my question what yeah, was yeah. that what was that like
1: yes yeah, so what he- what everyone was experiencing in the industry around the pandemic was that uh, you know in I think the vision is that everyone was sitting at home looking at their home. They couldn't do anything apart from shopping online and they couldn't do anything shopping by apart from, from furniture. So that's why the whole industry saw, saw a boom in demand. And therefore, all lots of wood was brought up and... On top of that, there was all kinds of complexity with boxing wood in Russia and something in North America. That, like, it was just a, it was a nightmare. So I think one one of the challenges, apart for go hunting for the right wood, is to ensure that the wood then came from certified forests. Because at that point, of course, when you're stretching supply chains a lot, there is a risk that things start to be a little broken, right? So that was actually one of the things we paid a lot of attention to, to ensure that the wood that we got, it came from sustainable forests that were certified and that we didn't deforest faster than you could replant and all these things. Right, So I think that was the particular challenge. And do you
0: think that you emerged the stronger for the additional pressure? I mean, it's hard enough starting a business like this, but do you think that it was one of those things? We often talk, I mean, Monaco even sort of launched in 2007. We know what happened a year later. A lot of the great brands, it's a proving ground and it's mm. a test of metal. Do you, do you subscribe to that? Is it is it in a way
1: good rigor to be forced to get through a period like that? I, I think it is. And we're we, we probably still in the in the aftermath of that, right? I think mean, what we saw on the on the supply chain and the supply of wood was then when the war broke out and Ukraine got involved in this. I mean lots of oak wood is coming from Ukraine. So suddenly that was sucking out capacity. So what we saw from the high demand and during the pandemic just extended into be a shortage of availability of wood. So we've been living with this for a couple of years now. But I think you're, you're right. But it's indicative of
0: this idea that just talking about
1: sustainability
0: is, is, too, is far too simplistic. And I know you're very engaged with this idea of trying to talk more broadly about true circularity of design and production. Can you tell us a bit about then... What does that actually mean? I know you said it's too it's too complicated to get into, but it is it's so much part of the fabric of Tact, I think it's important. What are some of those circular design principles and how do they shape all of the decision making?
1: In a sense it's not it's not complicated to understand what makes some furniture non-cyclical and non-sustainable. I think it's probably very obvious to most people that the reason you end up throwing out most furniture is not because they break. It's because you get tired of the color, the design, fabric wears out, there's a little spill of something, right? And you can't do anything about it. And if you live in an urban environment, there's no cabinet maker around the corner. You go put it in, unless it's super, super expensive stuff, right? So you just end up throwing it away. And at the moment, there's, I think the last statistics I saw was about 11 million tons of furniture being thrown out every year in Europe. It's just like a massive amount of furniture, which is, I think accounts for about five chairs per person, Every year. (laughs) Where are people hiding all these chairs? It's it's massive, right? I mean, so the reason, I think, is exactly that. You you can't repair it. You can't extend it. And as you also talked about, the fashion trend around furniture Mm -hmm. is not helping either, right? I think you can understand from a business point of view why a brand would like to find new fashion trends. So three years later, after you've sold the the first chair, you can sell another one because now there's a new color, there's new materials. But we have to avoid that. We have to get away from that and rather sell something that has an opportunity to be longer in the market. And that's a combination of aesthetics, color selection, material selection, very technical stuff like how you can repair your product and technical stuff like certifications of supply chains and validation of carbon footprints and those things. So that's why it's complex. It's not because each of the problems are complex. There's just a lot of angles to it. But the amazing thing at the moment think, is that certifications are now actually there. So you can't validate whether those claims are right. And I think that's just the push that we need to see now, that brands and companies with claims around sustainability make sure there's a validation around it. Mm. So you can't validate what the end-to-end life cycle footprint, carbon footprint, that's of your product. You can't certify that the supply chain meets standards, right? You can't certify that the materials come from sustainable sources. All those sort of third-party validations are there, which is like a big move compared to just five years ago. So I think that's quite exciting. If if everyone gets behind it, and understand that you have to demand, it. and then maybe it's a little dubious if you don't have those certifications. Well, I was going to say
0: it's it's exciting if you're doing it right, and it should fill people with trepidation if they're not. And I think the next generation, you know, our kind of kids' generation, they're going to demand that from everybody. Yeah. And in fact, they'll expect not to have to ask. One imagines that the pace of change is, yeah. is so rapid. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about new collections then and specific products. And beautiful products they are. Tell us about how some of these, the soft lounge chair, Mm. how does that embody all of these values? And crucially, it's a lovely thing Mm.
1: to look at (laughs) and to sit on.
0: Tell us a little bit about one of the products. What journey do they go through?
1: Soft lounge chair was actually one out of two lounge chairs that we launched when we wanted to move into making lounge furniture. And we later came out with a sofa half a year ago. And... It's designed by Thomas Benson, a Danish designer. And whenever every time we, we launch a new product in a new category, we ask ourselves, what is the problem we can solve from a sustainability point of view? And is there some value for money point we can also drive to? Because I think there's an element of some pieces of furniture that are super expensive. And if you want to have impact, you better make sure that lots of people actually get that impact rather than just making super exclusive stuff for very few people. And when you look at the lounge area, one of the problems with lounge chairs is that most of them are sort of uh, fully upholstered products, like a staple together, lots of fabric, lots of foam. You can't separate them. So you've got the challenge with how do, how do you repair a lounge chair, right? Because you, know, you can't take the elements off. So that was one thing, right? Can we make something that is component-based? So if something wears out, you can take it off and put something new on. Can we make something that is super soft and comfortable without being overly upholstered? So avoid all the foam, all the fabric around it, all the the glue, the stapling, the plastics around it, and so that's why we ended up calling it a soft lounge chair, even though the original version was just like made out of wood. <laughs> so <laughs> when, when you you're not going to
0: underscore it to people, it's, com- it's, like, it's, comfortable, people. it's comfortable. It's comfortable. comfortable yeah, comfortable. yeah. And, and
1: most people when they're sitting like wow, they're surprisingly comfortable because we really worked on the shape of the the veneer and and of the wood. And then we came out with a leather version of it, which has a small upholstery element of it to get some warmth around it. So in terms of how it embodies the the values, it's made out of materials that are the natural materials. So for that sake, then the carbon footprint is super easy to understand no recycling product of waste problems we have to think about. It can be separated into materials, sort of monomaterials. is one of the key words at the moment, monomaterials, because if you, want to, if you can separate it into individual components of materials, then you can also recycle and upcycle it afterwards. And it's made out of components, so you can repair it. And that's so just to that point, I mean, when we introduced our leather version of it, we actually then offered a good deal for everyone who'd already bought the original version, because you can just replace the seat. And then you can have the upholstered version. So you don't have to throw the whole thing away. You buy a new one. You just buy that component and put it on. You
0: can have your have your cake and eat it. Or in this case, your leather seat. Tell me, what what kind of reactions did you get, especially in the early days, but do you continue to get as you challenge other stakeholders in this process? Obviously, you're going to collaborate with great designers who love a challenge, usually. But at every point, you've got craftspeople, you've got manufacturers, you've got other people in your supply chain who presumably say, look, Henrik, our job's already fairly tricky, and now you're making us ensure we can deliver modularity and increasing provenance. But in the end, do they love that kind of challenge? Have you ever had people where you've spoken to them and they said, look, look this is too difficult,
1: we're walking away? Or, or actually, do people want to be challenged in this way? And there are two elements to that. So the question is, the first element is, who, who do you ask in the whole value chain, <laughs> right? As you say, I think good designers love a good challenge, right? And I think good designers always, not always, but often driven by deep values, of why they are working and why they're putting out new products in the world. So they love the fact that you actually do you tackle that problem head on. So we haven't had any pushback from the people that we work for on that. I think we, we see it mostly when you go out in the market and you sell the product and you are co- competing against all kinds of other products that doesn't have the same types of external validation and the same approach, right? And they find it irritating, obviously, <laughs> because... No, they, I mean, we, we try to instead of blaming people around we, we like to state what we do and be super transparent and open about it and so you sort of flip it it's sort of a kung fu move right? you sort of put it on the other ones to prove why that's not a problem mm-hmm. So if, if we disclose the full carbon footprint, end-to-end of it, right? If we disclose, here's, like, why the product costs as it costs, right, down to components and materials and workmanship and what have you, right? When you think, wow, that seems like a reasonable price for that, why is the other one as more expensive? Mm. Let them ask, <laughs> ask that question to those guys. So It's gentle, that's...
0: It's more com- but that's the great thing. I think confident brands don't need to challenge their competitors. They just have that acquired confidence. Yeah. Also, I like the idea, I think you've invented... Kung Fu design, just on this programme. It's a new concept. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit, you alluded to this already, about making good design more accessible, democratising the space. Mm. As you've said, I think lots of people would say, look, I'd love to have a great mid-century piece of Danish lounge furniture, but, you know, I don't have five grand to buy You know, a replica. I certainly don't have 50 to buy an original. How important is it also to, to deliver on that? Because I guess part of the sustainability story for the business is that you have consumers and yeah. find new consumers so that must be really important how much of a challenge is that do you think for the whole of the the sector
1: it, it's interesting actually the people that buy our products because we sell direct and that's one of the solution of how to get more value for money as a customer is that you don't feed the long chain of retailers and distributors and salespeople, whatever you. We primarily sell to 25 to 40 years old, the younger generation who who gets it. (laughs) And they understand value chain. They understand the direct-to-consumer model. We just find this super smart about how they shop and what brands they work with. And so that's our approach to getting more value for money. But it's also, I think, when we when we set out to do sustainability right and accessibility right The idea was actually also going back and looking at what the history of Danish design was. And I think there will, I don't know, arguably maybe we'll be looking back at this period in the same way that you look now back to the mid-century period of Danish Mm. design. Like with the great masters in Danish design came out with their wonderful pieces, which are still amazing pieces. I think it was also driven not just by a magic of coincidence. There were lots of talented people working in design by that point. But it was like the, the reason for the... It was the post-war period. It was the increase of, the, of the, the, the middle class industrialization was happening. Living standards was increasing. And it was actually... It was a, it was a value and a drive for many people in the, in the community to go and participate in that lift of the living standards. And I think it was a very strong drive for those masters of furniture, That they used the available materials, the available early industrialization to create pieces that were much more accessible to normal people. So those pieces are now super expensive. But I think it's the right extension of that value set and that history for us to go out and say, now the next challenge we have is doing something that is where the environment can continue and then continue doing it in a way that that allow, quote unquote, normal people Mm. to uh, buy the products. I think, of course, it's hard to say now what products will be classics. and But I think there is a fair chance that that external pressure around something new happening in the world and the fact that talent is flocking then to help contribute to solve that problem yeah. may be creating the next level of the next history of, of classic that 30 years, 50 years from now, we're going to look back and say, oh, that was smart, right?
0: And I guess it's always hard to know, you're in that moment until you have the advantage of yes. that, that that extra distance. I guess an interesting looking at that because that, that social historical element is really interesting. There's a crunch on younger people in your target demography having access to properties and offices into which they can put lovely furniture. I mean that's a, that must be in a sense a challenge because people are often not in a position to furnish a beautiful apartment because of the privations of the day and i guess we don't know what the direction of travel is do we we don't know to what extent people will be owner occupiers in 30 40 years but it's funny to think about those social factors they're very actively shaping your business and and certainly i'm afraid to tell you i don't have the answers but you have to kind of think about that i
1: guess do you or do you try and avoid that sort of time horizon, that, that looking that far ahead? I think it's hard to say that you're creating classics. I think what you can do, and I think probably the people that did create classics were doing, they were, they were in the moment, they were trying to solve real problems at the moment, and they were trying to do it with sort of ge- a genuine effort. Mm. And then some of them is sort of escape as being classics afterwards, right? I think you, you cannot... It's a well-known thing in the design community. If you want to create a classic, you're certainly not going to do it. Yeah. Because don't you end try up... to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't yeah. try to because you're going to end up looking backwards and being retrospective and just going to copy what is a classic already and that's just going to not going to work.
0: Well, more broadly then, in terms mm. of business growth and development, how, how, how do you calibrate what success looks like? Because we often come back to this point. Again, when I talk to entrepreneurs, the founders of businesses, whose idea is predicated not on the idea of buy more, more, more and following that strict kind of P&L logic, but they want you to invest for the longer term. How do you and your colleagues work out what a successful time period is? Because it's still a successful business and to be sustainable ecologically, first it's got to be sustainable
1: economically, but what does success look like? I think it's, it's a super good question when you talk about sustainability and some people talk about non-growth and these things, right? I think so... The way I'm thinking about our business is that what we do at the moment is that we've created circular design products that we're feeding into the world, and our success now is to displace non-cyclical design products in the market. And I hope that then, when you look 20 years ahead, that our business will be as much about sustaining that body of products, circularly designed products in the market, by simply facilitating that people that don't have the need for the product and set it off to someone else, maybe we can participate by uh, replacing a padding or a care kit or something like that that allow you to sort of upgrade it and perhaps just get a a new fresh look on it, but essentially just maintaining the same body of products in the market. That's what I'm hoping and that we'll get to at one point. But, of course, it's about initiating the body of products you can get out there and and work on.
0: Well, yeah, so would you say then, Henry, would you be as proud if people hold up tact as an exemplar as a business model as you would be if they cited a piece of furniture a chair a uh, spoke sofa would you be as proud and does it matter as much that the business mechanics are respected and cited in the same way
1: absolutely and i think it's down to of course sustainability is also about being economically sustainable so you actually have the means to go and spread out further and impact more people with what you do, and I think what's interesting at the moment is, and back to the complexity of it, that finding that right model is sort of a combination of so many things, right? And we talk about design, supply chain, business model, uh, you know, materials that you use. All these things have to click in place, and I think that's a design task for the whole business concept.
0: Well, it's funny, and the idea of design thinking not just on the design process but on the whole business process Exactly. probably an underused resource i certainly think in this country and we don't leverage our design smarts in terms of the business theory it's interesting because
1: like the couple of uk uh, london-based designers we worked with pearson lloyd and we work with industrial facility super talented designers but they're very much attuned to understanding that the solution is a combination all of them Mm. and maybe it doesn't is not true for all designers, but they actually embrace the, the dialogue we have, right? I, I, I love the creative conflict, you can say, we have when there's a designer with a vision about some aesthetic value, and we have the requirements from the supply chain and the design and the materials and the business model, and we got to find the right solution across all those parameters. And they're fully engaged in that dialogue. So I don't know whether that's true in general for British design, but at least for when we work with industrial facility and and Pearson Lloyd it, it's, it's the truth
0: well I'm highly encouraged I'm <laughs> considering you an expert Henrik, you so if you if you if you can recognize it that makes me mm. happy <laughs> tell me a little bit about what comes next I've mentioned a couple of more recent pieces obviously there's a newer collection and we know we can see the values that you're seeking to operate by as you grow and achieve more success but what are you most excited about We're in the final quarter of 2023 now but looking in final quarter and in, on into next year
1: yeah, So sorry for, for repeating myself, but in some of the recent ones we came out with, I'm quite, quite satisfied with how they show what we're, what we're aiming to do. And We talked about the soft lounge chair and the upgrade with the leather padding, the sofa also. I mean, it's something where you, I think when you look at it, of course, aesthetic can be different for different people. But I think you just look at it and it's just a beautiful sofa, but actually you can actually decompose it and talk about every single design element of choice around this, that we even took half a year to design the the upholstery and the placement of the zipper (laughs) to make sure that the, the upholstery can actually be taken off one of our investigations. The reason people get tired of the sofa is that they've spilled so much stuff on the sofa or whatever whatever they do on their sofa, right? But you can't wash it, you can't take it off. And in the end, you just throw the whole thing out. So we just make sure that that, that process was super nice and super simple. You can take it off, you can wash it 40 degrees Celsius and you can put it on again. So it took a lot of effort and maybe it looks natural when you see it. But to me, that's just a very sort of down-to-earth example of that. No,
0: I love that. Well, um, and that's proper, That's real thoughtful design, isn't it? Because it's not about overthinking the design at the moment when the curtain sort of drops on it. It's about that day-to-day engagement. or Well, not day-to-day, year-to-year, decade-to-decade, exactly. hopefully, if the model exactly. works.
1: Exactly. And I think everyone that's lived with good design product can, can find themselves in that, right? That you, you look at curves, you look at, at design many, many years later, and it keeps on unfolding itself. That's the consideration and thoughtfulness behind it. So it's just not the apparent look. It's just also how you sort of get into it when you live with it for many years. But we have another wonderful chair by uh, industrial facility coming um, next year, which is something we worked very hard on. It's going to be it's, it's a beautiful chair that also encapsulates all those those values that I look forward to showing to you.
0: That was Henrik Lawrenson, the founder and CEO of Tact. You can learn more about the brand by heading to tactcph.com. That's all for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out as well for Eureka, available every Friday. The program was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing by Tamsin Howard and editing assistance from Sammy Sweesey. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to the magazine and read more about better businesses every month. You can also follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the entrepreneurs team, email Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.